It has been exciting to see what God is doing through your student ministry here at Marbley, and I do hope you'll respond to their request for prayer because this can be a week of destiny for your middle schoolers this week and high school folks after that. May 7th, there was a great disturbance on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem as Muslim Arabs worshiping at the Al-Aqsa Mosque there on the Temple Mount got into a clash with Israeli soldiers. Very quickly, Hamas, a terrorist organization in the Gaza area south of Israel, saw this as an opportunity to attack Israel once again and began to send thousands of rockets over into Israel. Thankfully, Israel's Iron Dome of Defense was able to fend off most of those rockets, although some did penetrate and create great harm. Then Israel responded with great force, and what you saw was the latest of an Israel versus Hamas war. And then by May 21st, a ceasefire was declared, largely through Egypt's negotiation. And now that that is two weeks ago, it is for so many Americans so far removed from your mind because Americans as a whole are so obsessed with the present, there's very little about history, be it recent history or ancient history, that you give much thought to. But today we need to because we want to see how one couple's sin, heroes of the faith, has led to long-term consequences in a way that helps us understand the conflict in the Middle East. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 16. If you're new to Bible study, Genesis is an easy book to find, the first book. And look at the 16th chapter. We're going to be studying the whole chapter. And we've got a lot of biblical real estate to cover today, so you're going to need a Bible to follow along. You really do want to get ready for that. But we're going to introduce this study by looking at verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 16. So to honor God, if you're physically able, if you'll stand now for the reading of God's Word. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Verse 2. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and Hagar fled from her presence. Father, as we stand before you today looking to understand the world we live in, especially in the Middle East, we pray that you will speak to us through your word in the Old Covenant, 
and that we will understand this through the mind and the heart of Jesus. Lord, reveal to us insight we have not seen before. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you convict us to trust in you through Jesus Christ to realize your ultimate plans for history. For we pray this prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Why can't those people in the Middle East get along? I have been asked that question hundreds of times in my years of pastoring. Why can't they just work things out? Why is there always conflict in the Middle East? Now, sadly, because Americans are so weak in looking at history and learning from history, a lot of Americans think the conflict began in 1948 after the UN had passed Resolution 181 in 1947 to provide for a homeland for the Jewish people coming out of the days of the Holocaust in World War II so the Jews would have a land of their own to return to their land that they had claimed thousands of years earlier. And so in May of 1948, when Israel was reborn as a nation, a lot of Americans think that's when the conflict in the Middle East began. Not true. The conflict in the Middle East has been going on for thousands of years. And the origin of that conflict goes all the way back to this historical event that we're reading today in God's Word. Now look at Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now to give you a little background so you'll understand why this is so significant, that Sarah is barren and has been unable to have children at this time in her life. Well, 10 years earlier, God called Abraham at the time named Abram to leave his native land in what is now modern-day Iraq, and God calls him in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And turn with me, if you will, back a few chapters to Genesis 12, because this is vital to understanding all of the Bible. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I show you. In other words, God calls on Abraham to take his family to a land that he would show him. He doesn't even tell him where it's going to be. This is a story of incredible faith on the part of Abraham to be led by God to a land where he knew not he was going. So the promise of the land is there. Secondly, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. In other words, God said he's going to incredibly bless Abraham. At the same time, he wants Abraham. He is calling and choosing Abraham to leave what is modern day Iraq to come to this land that we know is the modern day Israel. And God is going to use him to be a blessing to the whole world. And God says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's quite a calling. Now, what is so amazing about that is Abraham was 75 years old and Sarah was 65. She was beyond the childbearing years, and yet God says he's going to build a great nation from the seed of Abraham. 
They are beyond the childbearing years. This would have to be a miraculous event. But Abraham and Sarah in faith begin to move from Iraq to this land where they knew not they were going. Ten years later, in Genesis 15, they still had no children. Now Abraham is 85 and Sarah is 75 and no children. How is the promise of the land going to come about? And Abraham goes to God discouraged and God reassures Abraham. Read the story in Genesis 15, beautiful story. And God then makes a covenant with Abraham that you can read about in Genesis 15. And then God tells him some of the geographical boundaries of the promised land that he's going to give to his heirs. But then not long after that, we come to Genesis 16.1. And God's word tells us again that Sarah is still barren. Abraham's 85, she's 75, no child. That's a problem. So we see the problem at the beginning. Then Sarah comes up with a practical idea, verse 1b. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I'll obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now I want you to understand that in the ancient world, there were four ways that it was culturally acceptable for a barren woman, for she and her husband to have children. Number one, they could adopt a child like couples can do today. Secondly, her husband could take on a second wife and have a child through that second wife. Thirdly, her husband could have sexual relations with a concubine. Fourth, her husband could have sexual relations with the slave of the mistress or the wife of the household. That was the idea that Sarah came up with, an idea that she was going to help God out in the fulfilling of his promises. So she goes to Abraham, Abraham, I've got an idea. I'm barren. I'm 75. I'm beyond the childbearing years. I want you to sleep with my maid, Hagar. So Abraham responds like this to him. It's a win, win, win. The first win is they're helping God out in fulfilling his promise. The second thing is he'll make his wife happy. The third is he'll get to sleep with this young woman who is the slave of his wife. So he thinks it's a win-win-win. Well, is it? Let's look and see what happens. Verse 3, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar, a very graphic description of sexual intercourse. And she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Now, at first, it appears that this plan is working out. And God is blessing what they're doing. But understand this about Sarah. Everybody, are you listening? Are you listening? Don't miss this. Sarah was practicing that favorite American verse that is not in the Bible. What is that verse? God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that before? It's from Ben Franklin. It's not anywhere in the Bible. It's Ben Franklin. God helps those who help themselves. She's practicing that thousands of years before Ben Franklin lived. Everything seems to be working out. Hagar conceived. But then a cat fight ensues. It's a serious problem because it tells us that all of a sudden Hagar felt despised in her mistress' eyes and vice versa. 
And we don't know exactly what occurred, but can't you just see it? Can't you just see it? Maybe there in the tents, Hagar's just looking at Sarah and just kind of has a little smile on her face. I've got something you don't have. You can just see what's happening here. So how does Sarah respond to that? Well, Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you, Abraham. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Does that seem very fair? This was her idea. Now she is furious. She is jealous of Hagar, and she's resentful. So what does she do? She takes it out on her husband, Abraham. Well, how does Abram respond to this? Verse 6, Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and Hagar fled from her presence. Now, Abraham, he's clueless. He's thinking, honey, I wanted to make you happy. And now you're taking out all this frustration on me. You, you, you see what he's doing? He's pulling the Seinfeld right here, just arms outstretched. I mean, long before Sigmund Freud coined the phrase, what does a woman want? Abraham is thinking that thought. Woman, what do you want? I did what you wanted me to do, and now you're ticked at me. Go ahead, do what you want to do. Kind of washes his hands of it. So she makes life miserable for Hagar, and Hagar flees to the desert. Let's look and see what happens. Verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, on the way back to Egypt. Now, the chances of a woman making it on those desert paths from where they were in Canaan back to Egypt, especially a pregnant woman, are slim and none, so she is in total despair. Verse 8, this angel of the Lord said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Now, who is this angel of the Lord? Time and again in the Old Covenant, when the angel of the Lord is referred to, it is what is called a theophany. What is that? Well, it's a Christophany. What is that? It is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We know that Christ was miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But Jesus always is, was, and will be as God. And so in the Old Testament, there are these pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ as he is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And as you will notice, and another reason that we see it's so easy to understand the angel of the Lord is Jesus, is that he teaches by asking a question. Remember, Jesus is more Socratic than Socrates. He is teaching by asking a question. It's not that he doesn't know the answer. He is always raising questions to cause a person to think. Hagar, what you doing out here in the desert by yourself? This pretty hopeless situation. She says, well, I'm running for my mistress, Sarah. And so then God tells her to do the very thing, the last thing she want to do. He says, you need to go back to Sarah. You, know, you need to go back to her. Now, when you're catching an unfair deal in your life and somebody is mistreating you terribly, the last thing you want God to respond to when you complain to God about how unfair your treatment is is for God to call on you to repent. That's hard to take. 
But that's exactly what God told Hagar. You need to go back to the household of Sarah and you need to submit to her authority. Think about it. Some of you got some mean, old, sorry boss he's given you or she's given you an absolute fit, making your life miserable. You complain to God about it. He says, you need to go back to work and submit to your boss. Woo! That's not what you want to hear from God. That's hard to take. But that's what God says to Hagar. But look at what else God says. He gives her a promise and he gives her a prophecy. Now, don't miss this. Verse 10. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that there will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you're with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. And Ishmael means God hears, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brethren. Now, look at what God is saying to Hagar. Hagar, you go back to your mistress. You submit to her leadership. But, Hagar, from the child you're going to give birth to is going to become a great people. I'm going to multiply them greatly. You're going to have a son, Hagar. And I want you to name your son Ishmael, which means God has heard your prayers out here in the desert. But I also have a prophecy about your son, Hagar, Ishmael. He is going to be a wild donkey of a man. If some of you are reading the King James Version, you know it says a wild ass of a man. And his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of his brethren. That's a prophecy of God. Do not forget Genesis 16, 12. Do not forget it. It is a prophecy of God that is continuing to be fulfilled right in front of your eyes on the news day in and day out all through history. So how does Hagar respond? Well, Hagar responds in obedience to the word of God as does Abraham, now called Abram, as she returns. Look at Genesis 16, verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Laharoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now, Ishmael is the elder son of Abraham. In ancient culture, the elder son would have the greatest blessings of the children. But Ishmael is the illegitimate son of Abraham. So what unfolds in this situation when Abraham is 86 and Sarah is now 76 and her maid, Hagar, has given them a child. What unfolds is this is the origin of the Middle East conflict. And even though what Sarah and Abraham did is clearly not the will of God, they epitomize. Now listen, are you listening? 
They exemplify what sin is. And what is sin? Sin is when we do not trust God and we decide to do what we feel is best. That is the essence of sin. That's why all of us are sinners. Because all of us have those times when we do not trust God and we take matters into our hands and we say, God helps those who help themselves. A very unbiblical and ungodly approach to life. A very American approach to life, but not a biblical approach to life. And we've all been guilty of that sin. So we see that happening in Abraham and Sarah's life, and it is the origin of the Middle East conflict. Why do we say that? Well, we're going to see that as the Scripture unfolds. Now look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17. And we're going to see how God overrules Abraham and Sarah's sin because 13 years later, 13 years later, God comes back to Abraham when he's 99 years old. Sarah's now 89. And God not only reiterates the promise of the land, but the promise of what he said earlier about building a nation through Abraham and Sarah. Look at what he says, verse 15 of Genesis 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. The kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child now? A lot of people get on Sarah because she laughed when the angel of the Lord came and said that next year they would have a child. She laughed and people give Sarah a hard time. But hey, Abraham's laughing too. He's just like you and me. He's 100 years old. She's 90. This can't happen. But God is going to bring about a miracle in his promises. They have normal sex relations of a husband and wife at that elderly stage of life. And so look at what it says in verse 18. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, he's saying, surely it's going to be Ishmael. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish, listen to this, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and you will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now, God is overruling. He said he's going to build a great nation through Abraham and Sarah, and now he is about to fulfill it as she is going to give birth to their child by the name of Isaac. But do the problems stop? No, the consequences of man's sin last a long time. So then Isaac is born. And a few years later, you can read about this in Genesis 21. Write that down so you can follow up on this in Genesis 21. We don't have time to look at it, but a few years later, as Isaac is being weaned, they would have like a celebration, almost like what we would have in a birthday party for a young child. They would celebrate that the child had moved from infancy where they're weaned from their mother's milk to where they can eat on their own, eat normal food on their own, and there's kind of a weaning party they would have. Well, during that weaning party from Isaac, when he was two or three years old, we see that Ishmael, who is now a young teenager, is mocking Isaac. 
just like a lot of teenage boys would do to their younger brother. Nothing unusual about this. But Sarah becomes furious. I mean, she is furious. And so now this cat fight ensues again. And she goes to Abram. She's got to leave. They got to go. They got to go. And so God allows for Abram to fulfill Sarah's wishes. And you know the grief Abraham had to have. This is his oldest son, oldest boy, Ishmael. He's grown to love. God says, no, you got to follow what Sarah is saying. They're kicked out of the house. You're talking about something that's tough to deal with. If you're Hagar and Ishmael, that's tough to deal with. That's hard to accept. But what you see for the long-term consequences of one couple's sin is the beginning of a sibling rivalry that carries on to this day. Now turn to one other passage, Genesis 25. Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, you see the funeral of Abraham. And for the first time in many years, Isaac and Ishmael are brought together as estranged brothers are brought together for the funeral of their father Abraham. And then the Bible in verses 12 of chapter 12 following of Genesis 25 tells us a little bit about what happened in Ishmael's life and some of the heirs of Ishmael. And then in verse 17, it says this in Genesis 25. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Now listen to this. Listen. Are you listening? And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes to Assyria, Assyria was located in what is modern-day Iraq, and he settled in defiance of his relatives. Now, Listen, what is the land that is modern-day Havilah? It is the Arabian Peninsula. As God said that Ishmael would settle to the east of his brothers, he did in Havilah, which is the Arabian Peninsula. And what were the people called that were from the Arabian Peninsula? They were called Arabs. So I hope that you see what is unfolding in this Middle Eastern conflict and drama. God is making it very clear that Isaac would be the covenant child as he is the covenant child. And he becomes the father of Jacob that God renamed Israel. And you have the Jewish people in Israel coming from Isaac, the covenant child. But from Ishmael, you have the Arab people that were largely in the Arabian Peninsula, east of Egypt, east of this land of Assyria, in the Middle East. And to understand that is to understand the conflict that you read about in the Middle East to this very day. And it is a very understandable conflict. How would you like to be Ishmael? How would you feel? This would be difficult to take. So in light of all of that, we need to understand that there are long-term consequences for sin. Because it wasn't just the heirs of Ishmael and Isaac thousands of years ago that had a hard time getting along, and understandably, in 571 A.D., there was a baby born in Mecca by the name of Muhammad, an heir of Ishmael. 
And Muhammad grew up to have these so-called visions from God. He was troubled about a couple of things. He was troubled about the fact that his people, the Arab people in tribal uh, feuds were always at war with one another. A direct prophecy fulfillment of Genesis 16, 12. And so he felt like if they could become a monotheistic people and have one God versus a polytheistic people and believe in many gods that it would unify the people. He looked at the Jewish scriptures. He felt the Jewish and Christian scriptures of the Old and New Covenant had been corrupted. So through these revelations of God, he began to develop what he felt like was a purification of religion of monotheism in the worship of Allah, the Arab word for God. But Muhammad became a violent man, a warrior. And as the Jews did not respond to what he felt like was a purification of the corruption of their religion, he began to be furious at many Jews in that region. He personally oversaw the execution of over 600 Jews in a way that gives really a foreshadowing of what the Nazi Germans did to the Jews in the Holocaust. He lined them up in front of a pit, and rather than shooting them with machine guns and rifles, they were beheaded, and he oversaw the whole process because they were rejecting what he felt like was the right way to believe in God. And you see the violence of Islam that goes all the way back to their founder, Muhammad. Not only that, not only that, but in fulfillment of that prophecy in Genesis 16, 12, his hand will be against everyone, everyone's hand against him. From Muhammad's heirs, you had two groups evolved. You have a group that's called the Shiites. Shiite Muslims believe that the leader of Islam should be a direct descendant or heir of Muhammad. They're a small group of Muslims, less than 10% of all the Muslims in the world, but they dominate in Iran and Iraq. But the large majority of Muslims are called Sunnis, Muslims in Saudi Arabia, Muslims in Egypt and other lands around the world, almost 90% of the Muslims of the world. They believed that the leader of Islam should be chosen by the leading imams and doesn't have to be a direct heir of Muhammad. And these two groups are constantly at war jockeying for leadership of the Muslim world. And it all goes back to one verse in Genesis 16, 12 that tells us all of this is going to happen. But not only that, we realize in this story that it's a reminder about a truism in life. Now listen, are you listening? This shocks you. But so often the toughest temptations in life come from the person you love the most and the person who loves you. Think about it. Eve with Adam. Sarah with Abram. Peter with Jesus. Jesus was prophesying to his disciples they were going to go to Jerusalem. The religious people were going to turn against him. They would crucify him and put him to death. And what did Peter do? He turned to Jesus and said, don't talk like that. Don't talk like that. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because he knew that the will of his heavenly father was for him to go to the cross and pay the penalty for all of our sins on the cross. That's why he became a man. And yet Peter, who loved him, and he loved Peter, 
He didn't want something like that to happen. And it was a temptation to Jesus that Jesus resisted. Not to give in to that temptation of the disciple who loved him like that. Never forget that the toughest temptations in life often come through the person you love the most and who loves you because that person doesn't want you to suffer. And they're trying to help you out. And so they suggest a compromise on the will of God. And because you love that person and they love you, it's very, very tempting. This is why it's so, listen now, are you listening? It's why it's so important for a committed Christian to marry a committed Christian. It doesn't guarantee you that your spouse is never going to tempt you to compromise on the will of God. But it sure ups the odds that they're going to encourage you to trust the will of God and obey the will of God rather than doing what you or they feel is best. That's a sobering reminder in this story. But not only that, as we look at this story, we also see the amazing grace and mercy of God. Now listen, are you listening? God showed amazing grace to Hagar. Folks, she was the victim. She is clearly the victim here. She had no power. And God showed amazing grace to Hagar. And not only that, he said, I will bless the heirs of your son Ishmael, which he has done. The grace and mercy of God. It wasn't his plan. The amazing grace and mercy of God. But he also showed amazing grace and mercy to Abraham and Sarah because it was their idea, Sarah's idea, and Abram giving in to the temptation that began this conflict in the Middle East, these long-term consequences of sin. But we see how God still overruled man's sin, and he fulfilled his promise to give them a son, Isaac, and from Isaac came the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel is where God chose for his son to be born as a gift to the world. And it's a reminder of God's grace and mercy for all mankind. Romans 5, 8, what does the word of God say? For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got our life together, he allowed us to become a Christian. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. The grace and mercy of God that is shown with Hagar, that is shown with Abraham and Sarah, is a grace and mercy that is available to every person here and every person in the world. So let us not forget that. That in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our falling, when we take matters into our own hands and stop trusting God and do what we feel is best, which is always sin, God in his grace and mercy can overrule that. And he will. So what are the takeaways here? The takeaways here from Genesis 16 is you want to understand the origin of the Middle East conflict, you go to Genesis 16. This explains it. This is where it all began. Matter of fact, some of you at the office this week, somebody will tell you, you know, those people in the Middle East fighting all the, long, all the time. Will they ever get along? You can say, I've got some news for you. Let me tell you where all this began. They'll be shocked, especially if they're Jewish friends. They'll be shocked. They don't know the scriptures a lot of times you're Jewish friends. They're dumbfounded to see God working in history in spite of man's shortcomings and fall. But that's not all. 
the rebirth of Israel in 1948 created an unresolvable conflict. Unresolvable. Think about it. The Jews had that land until that time between 70 A.D. to 135 A.D. when the Romans expelled the Jews from the land. And to add insult to injury to the Jews, they not only expelled them from the land, but they chose the Latin name of Palestine, which is a derivative of their longtime enemy, the Philistines. They renamed the land. Never wanted the Jews to come back. Then in 1948, out of the Holocaust and the worldwide guilt of what Nazi Germany had done to the Jews, the UN passed Resolution 181 and a nation was reborn the first time in all of history something like that ever happened. But it created an unresolvable conflict because after all, they've been out of the land for 2,000 years. And when the Muslims conquered Jerusalem in the Middle East in the 6th and 7th century A.D., they had been in control of the land for almost 1,300 years. So you think they're going to be happy about giving up some of the land that they had conquered for Allah? Think about it this way. Hey, are you listening? Are you listening? Texans, Texans, you're proud of your state. But say this year, the U.N. passes another resolution, 1892, say that says the people in the state of Texas who own land are going to have to give up their land to the Native Americans. And I know you Texans and all you people from the original 13 colonies, you feel like we stole it fair and square. (laughs) But the UN says, no, it was their land first, so y'all got to leave. How about it, Texans? How are you going to feel? It is an un- resolvable conflict from a human perspective but listen please listen are you listening there is great hope because even though it is an unresolvable conflict and all these so-called peace treaties that happen between Israel and the Middle East they are really temporary truces they are not lasting peace But one day, when Jesus returns, at last there will be perfect peace in the Middle East and in all of earth. Listen, are you listening? Even though the rebirth of Israel created an unresolvable conflict that no man is going to be able to solve, there are so many prophecies in the Old Covenant concerning Israel and the coming Messiah that could only be fulfilled if Israel existed for almost 2,000 years. Biblical scholars couldn't figure out how can these Old Testament prophecies about Israel be fulfilled. There's no Israel. Israel doesn't exist. And then in 1948, this nation that hadn't existed for 2,000 years is reborn. And now all these biblical prophecies leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, they now can be fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? It is God's sovereign plan in control of all of history. And our ultimate hope is that one day when Jesus returns, at last there'll be peace on earth. Let me read to you the prophecy of Isaiah. Over 700 years before Christ walked this earth, here is the prophecy that God led Isaiah to preach in Isaiah 2.4. Speaking of the Messiah who will come again, he will judge between the nations. 
He will mediate for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. And nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. This is awesome, my friends. All the weapons of war will be destroyed because the weapons will no longer be needed because at last Christ will bring peace on earth among all the ethnic groups that have division and hostility and prejudice, just like the Arabs and the Jews in the Middle East. And it will be glorious. So the big decision, the big takeaway for you and me is are you going to be a part of Christ's kingdom when he comes again? Because you've come to repentant faith and believing Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have salvation and eternal life? Or are you going to be a part of the judgment of God when Christ comes again and be eternally condemned to hell, separated from the kingdom of God because you have not come to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Don't make that mistake. Be a part of God's victorious plans for all of history by giving your heart and life to Jesus, our ultimate hope, as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father God, how awesome it is to see your word, to see the trustworthiness of your word, to see the truth of your word, to see the insight in your word so that we can understand the world in which we lived in, in today. And Father, I thank you for the ultimate hope we have in Jesus. We know there is personal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ today for all who come to you in repentant faith, but we also know that the ultimate salvation of this world from the conflict and the wars and the hatred and the violence is your return to reign on earth as you're reigning in heaven today. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for you to come. And, Father, for those of us who are followers of Christ, may this give us an urgency to share this good news of how you're in control of history and how Jesus is our only answer to ultimate peace on earth. But, Father, for those who are not sure of their salvation or for those who know they're not a follower of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may they come under your conviction today to say, Oh, my goodness, I had no idea that all of this has happened and will happen. I see now that God is in charge. I want to be a part of Christ's eternal kingdom. May you make that decision today. We give you this prayer, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.